0: Don't, don't talk. You will never be the same. And for the full catastrophe, he didn't mean it was all bad. Oh, that I wasn't Caso Well don't play with I invite you to the dance. To the dance with the Lord of the Dance. God didn't call America to do what she's doing in the world now. Please don't. This passage, it's a it's an interesting one. And it's one that I spent a lot of time with this week for obvious reasons. But I want to talk process for a moment first. Now, It actually does surprise some people, uh, particularly I know the people online, uh, that preparing a sermon is something that actually takes a lot of time. Uh, There's a whole process behind sermon preparation that's more than just getting up here and saying, all right, I'm going to talk about something. Uh, If you grew up in an evangelical environment, you're probably used to seeing a pastor just kind of get up and preach in a way that seems very conversational, very informal, even improvisational. Um, And I say almost to that, because in truth, if you think about it, when an evangelical pastor like that gets up, it's not actually improvisational. When you think about it, there's really no way it could be off the cuff as it looks, no matter how folksy or conversational they make it sound, because they had to know that the verse for the week was coming. I mean, in the week leading up to the service, these kind of sleeves rolled up, down-home sneakers and jeans preachers whose entire outfit somehow cost thousands of dollars despite looking like it was picked up out of a dumpster behind a thrift store. These guys, they, they hand-selected the Bible passage that was read, and even if they don't have a manuscript in hand like I do, uh, they still had plenty of time to prepare and memorize, at the very least, their main points. Honestly, though, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's not a bad thing. Preparation is actually very good. But that process is important. The the way, the how of it really matters. Now, most evangelical preachers, uh, the ones that I know you online are familiar with, they begin their process of making a sermon with an idea. They have a point that they want to make, some social issue they want to speak to, some crisis in the community they want to address, and then they build outward from that. Once they know what they want to say, they select a Bible verse to support it, uh, or something at least they can pretend supports it, and then they begin carefully crafting an overwhelming, disarming spiritual experience, allowing whatever point it is that they want to make to just kind of ride that wave of emotion Uh, through the loud music and the the swelling feelings until everyone present just kind of mistakes it for an authentic, spontaneous spiritual experience. And I gotta be honest, like you can tell from the cynicism by which I'm I'm explaining this, uh, I have a lot of experience in both my musical career and my ministerial career working against using these kinds of emotionally manipulative techniques in worship. Uh, But there's actually something even deeper in that process I just described, something darker that happened. And I'm guessing not all of us realized it. Let's go back to that. The first step of that hypothetical evangelical preacher's process, before any of the craft and the the polish and the emotional manipulation, the first thing they did was to start with their own idea and intention. Now, truth be told, this is this is a trap that a lot of preachers fall into, not just evangelicals. Uh, I just really like to single them out Um, that that trap of making the worship about what we want to say rather than what God wants to say. A lot of us do fall into that. And I know that myself, I can be a very opinionated person, which is why you'll find that I almost always start my process, not by asking what I think people need to hear by looking to the lectionary instead. Now, for those of you who don't know, the revised common lectionary is a tool that is shared by just about every branch of the Christian church. And it takes the Bible and breaks it up into a prepared series of passages selected for every single Sunday in a three-year rotation. So you get through the whole Bible in three years. But instead of picking our own Scripture. And starting from our own topic and trying to bend the Bible to fit our ideas, we are given a scripture passage we can draw upon and then ask where God's will is in the Bible for us today. So usually I try to do that. And so I pop open the lectionary and every Sunday I'll find maybe a half a dozen specifically curated passages for that week. And I got to be honest with you, just about every week, I find God speaking something, usually something helpful or supportive, sometimes something painful but necessary. But there's usually always something that speaks out from the text of the week. But Man, this week, (laughs) this week, uh, this was a rough one. And I got to be honest with you, there were other options. I mean, we could have talked about Abraham's aborted sacrifice of Isaac. We could have spent time with a brief passage from Matthew about what it means to welcome Jesus. Much easier passages were available, but this one—it kept poking at me like all week. It was in there like a, like a rock in your shoe. I mean, it hurts, but eventually you got to, You realize there's nothing else you can do but sit down and deal with it. And let's be honest, this passage here is no small rock. Uh, Most of us have heard at least some of the verses in this passage, usually from some preacher or another, telling us some way that we're just broken wrong or sinful. I mean, listen to some of these lines for a second. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Or how about uh, you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Or, Or even this one. Uh, But now that you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. My Lord. These these sound like a lot like any old street preacher you might come across, right? I mean, it really does sound like that same old toxic theology on which the great idols of prosperity-driven megachurches were built, right? But this is harder to take here because what we're hearing is it coming from some goateed, flannel-wearing 30-something with the carefully crafted pool of a second-year MBA student with a focus on marketing generic brand pharmaceuticals? No, this is coming from someone who is quite arguably the most famous follower of Christ in history. I mean, Paul's a big deal, right? I mean, he's this great leader of the church, the first real head of the church. He's got power. He's got gravitas. He's got authority behind his words, doesn't he? No, No, not really. Um, Think back what I just said. It was actually Peter who was the first head of the church, the first Pope chosen by Christ to lead God's people. It wasn't Paul. It was Peter whose teachings carried weight and gravitas and authority. Peter who communicated the word of God clearly and unambiguously to his flock, passed down his authority given to him by Jesus to his successor. Okay, all right, successor, that's got to be Paul, right? Uh, (laughs) Nope. Truth is, Paul never held an office in the church. Never once. In fact, he, by his own choice, operated totally independent of the church that Jesus founded, the great community that Peter, the rock, built. And so this means that, well, You know, he agreed with the teachings of Christ. He was never accountable to anyone in the community, not anyone but himself, and his own personal issues when it came to what he taught. (laughs) Boy, did he have some issues. Uh, Paul was a hardcore fundamentalist from his earliest days, so much so, so that, as we all know, before his conversion to Christianity, his favorite pastime was hunting down and capturing or straight up murdering anybody who had different beliefs than him. I mean, in this case, it was usually the nascent community of early Christians. And while his encounter with Jesus along that Damascus road, man, it certainly changed what he believed. in. The Paul that we see in the the seven epistles that we know are his really doesn't seem to have changed how he believed. Even as a Christian, he's still very much a fundamentalist at heart. Someone with a black and white binary view of how the world and faith works. And it's okay for us to allow this information to be a part of how we read the Bible and to change how we understand it. And oddly oddly enough, when you get down to it, this is pretty much what Paul is actually saying in the text. He uses this kind of weird to us, master, slave, binary language to explain it, which was the style at the time. But what he's saying here is that we don't, have to be beholden to a literal word-for-word legalistic understanding of what it means to serve God just because it's written that way in the scriptures. You see, what Paul has done here is he's effectively outlined three kind of broad categories in life, what he calls sin, the law, and grace. Now, As the first real theologian of the Christian faith, we can already see that Paul is doing here that same thing that just about every first-year seminary student loves to do. He's using big, broad, complicated theological language to describe something absurdly simple. (laughs) In short and simplified down, the three things he's really talking about here are human nature by itself the legalistic Jewish fundamentalism, which is uh, Paul's own religious background, and Christianity under Christ. And what he's saying is that whichever of the three of these you choose to embrace, that's what will define you and the life you choose to live going forward. So if you choose to live by the law, the dictates of first century legalistic Jewish fundamentalism in Paul's eyes, then your entire life is going to be defined by trying to keep up with that law trying to make sure that you dot your I's and you cross your T's, making yourself as perfect as possible so you don't run afoul of the complexities of a life lived under the threat of divine legality. Today, we see this all the time with uh, Christian fundamentalists, evangelical fundamentalists, particularly in America, who dedicate their lives to understanding God through the lens of complex codes of purity, or race, or social order, or economics, or sexuality, or, 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 so many different rules. That's a life that's defined by fear. Fear of making a mistake, or acting in a way, or being in a way that is wrong somehow. And that kind of life can, and often will, end quite badly, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. So that's that. But if you choose to live what Paul calls the sinful life, on the other hand, well, broad category again, but that is a life that doesn't bother with God at all. Now, if that's your choice, if that's the life you want to go for, right or wrong, kind of stop being concerns for you. As a result, you figure out ways to prosper here and now, but usually at the expense of others. Your relationships start to grow hollow. Your community starts to fall away, and you become isolated and alone until all that's left for you is death. Just look at any billionaire today any billionaire today and you will see how well that life goes look into the eyes of your your elon's musk or your joel's Osteen or your marx zuckerberg and you will see the isolation the loneliness the hollow empty feeling that only becomes more dark and cavernous the more money and things you dump into it a cold dark and lonely death surrounded by all the riches of the world that can buy absolutely anything except the love that defines us as bearers of the image of God. That's the reward at the end of that path, the wages of sin, as Paul calls it. (laughs) Literally the opposite of a living wage, if we're honest. And then there's the third option. This is the one that Paul calls grace. Now, what he's talking about here is, in that time, a totally different approach, pretty unique, where we can step away from those sinful desires of humanity and look for something more divine, something better. And at the same time, stepping away from that, we don't have to bind ourselves to meticulous following of religious law either. This third way has us use not ourselves and our own desires or religious legalism as our guides on how to live our lives and relate to our God, but love as a tool to Point the way to right and wrong instead. Now, the social constructs that define right and wrong, they may change. The laws of our religion may become harder to follow as the world changes around us, but love is a fixed constant. It's always the same and a far more stable guide than any law, any scripture, anything that we possess within ourselves. What grace means is that we are forgiven as long as we embrace the love that comes to us from God through Christ. We're totally allowed to make mistakes. And in so doing, and as long as we do them with love, we can learn and we can grow and we can change. We don't have to follow the exact same beliefs and practices and way of doing faith as those who came before us because we're not using the letter of the law as our guide. Grace and love are our guiding stars, not ancient legal text or this collection of unread mail from the first evangelical ever to tell the Pope to get lost. And we're definitely not using the ancient fever dreams of St. John of Patmos either. It's grace. It's love. Grace means that we can look at these texts and see them for what they are. A gospel of love filtered through the perceptions and idiosyncrasies of people with their own stuff going on. Grace means we can look at these texts and see not the scolding whip of a God who wants us to toe the line and be slaves on his side and not slaves on the other side, but we can see the helpful guidance of friends long gone who wanted to give us the benefit of their understanding of a God who we will spend our entire lives coming to understand in our own way, too. (laughs) As Christians, we've read passages like today's many times, and when we do, we read them almost like a threat. The wages of sin is death, it says. So throughout history, we've gone out and tried to assimilate as many people as possible into our way of thinking and our way of being because we think it'll save them from that death. But while we were reading these texts as closely and as literally as possible, we forgot the love that was within us, forgot what it means to be, forgot, we forgot that it means to be Christian. And it isn't to force people to be like us. It's to bring that gospel grace out from us into their lives, showing love rather than demanding acceptance. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. No purchase necessary, no membership called for, no adherence to the law, no tithing, no ritual or baptism required. Grace is free. Forgiveness is free. And the life eternal is free too. So that's what I want us to start by thinking about today. What does it truly mean for us to accept that kind of grace? Not just personally, in terms of how we relate to God, but in terms of how we understand and relate to others as well. How can we approach the world when we are not bound to the letter of the law, but when we're able to adapt and grow and learn and change using love as our guiding star? What does the new life in Christ look like? When we're not tied to literalism, not tied to the law, but are only tied to love. Personally, I I think it sounds an awful lot like on earth as it is in heaven. That's just my opinion.